I'm Dr. Michelle McMurray-Heath, and you are listening to I Am Bio. We are on a summer break as we work to bring you another exciting season this fall. So for the next few weeks, we're sharing some of our favorite sessions from the June 2021 BioDigital Conference. Today, check out our episode on growing LGBTQ leadership in biotech, featuring our new chairman and the first openly gay leader of BIO's board, Paul Hastings. Hi, everyone, and uh, thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, My name is Matthew Fust, and I'd like to welcome you to this panel, which will focus over the next 45 minutes or so on uh, a range of topics, including recruiting, developing, and retaining LGBTQ talent at all levels uh, in biotech companies, ranging from entry level uh, all the way through to the boardroom. Uh, As you may be aware, Bio has launched a range of diversity initiatives over the past few years, and uh, we'll also incorporate updates on those in the course of today's panel. And we'll try throughout to make this as specific and actionable a conversation as we can for this audience. We know we'll have in attendance board members, biopharma executives, and various members of the LGBTQ plus community uh, across bio. We're gonna organize today's conversation in three broad chapters. First, we wanna talk a bit about where we've been, uh, which will include introductions from our panelists, a little bit of a snapshot on their own careers and some of their insights on uh, leading while diverse uh, in a range of settings uh, throughout their careers. Uh, Second, we wanna talk a bit about where we are and offer some insights around the current environment, especially for LGBTQ plus individuals who are working in biotech more generally across corporate settings uh, here in the US and around the world. Uh, And then third, turn the attention forward, where we're going and looking at some initiatives and opportunities to create more inclusive organizations and to create more opportunities for LGBTQ plus leaders. Uh, Let me start off the introduction. My name, as I mentioned, is Matthew Fust. I'm an advisor and consultant based in San Francisco and uh, I've worked throughout my career with a range of biotech companies currently serve as a consultant and serve on the board of uh, several biotechs. Uh, And more relevant for my conversation today, I've been uh, part of the Out Leadership Organization of which uh, Todd Sears is representing today and have been an advisor both to them and to others in the biotech community. So let's kick off. Uh, I'd like to ask each of our panelists to begin with just a quick uh, minute or two introduction about themselves and their backgrounds. Uh, And Denise, maybe we'll start with you. Sure. Hi, it's great to be here. Denise Torres, uh, about almost 30 years in uh, in healthcare, uh, most of it on the pharmaceutical side, uh, working with uh, Johnson & Johnson and Lilly. And today I serve on a number of public boards and very, um, very, very interested in our topic today and um, also the role of uh, mentorship and sponsorship. So great to be here with you. Thanks, terrific. Uh, Paul, over to you. Thanks, Matt. Uh, Paul Hastings, President and CEO of Encarta Therapeutics. I'm also Chair of the Biotechnology Innovation Organization. I've been in uh, pharmaceuticals and biopharmaceuticals for 37 years. Started my career at Hoffman LaRoche, uh, launched my first 
biotech product as a product manager, Alpha Interferon, back in 1987, and since then have been at a number of biotech companies, both large and small, and have recently um, been the CEO of two biotech startups. I'm on my fifth biotech CEO job and my second startup job. So I'm, I'm a veteran of the industry with experience that goes across all the different um, uh, types of organizations that are part of bio from big pharma all the way through to, you know, six person startup. Thrilled to be here. Terrific. Thank you, Paul. We'll definitely want to capitalize on looking at that, that breadth of experience. Uh, and Todd. Thanks, Matt. I'm, I think I'm the outlier here. I'm the non-bio person. I, uh, I'm a recovering banker, I like to say. I spent most of my career before founding out leadership on Wall Street. Uh, I was at Merrill Lynch, Credit Suisse, Schroeder's. Um, and when I was at Merrill Lynch, I started the first firm on Wall Street back in 2001 to focus on the LGBTQ market, both with domestic partner couples all over the country, as well as managing the endowments of 31 LGBTQ nonprofits. I ultimately ran diversity strategy for Merrill. I was head of diversity at Credit Suisse. And then in 2010, got laid off and took my severance check and started Out Leadership. And the goal of Out Leadership is to connect and convene LGBTQ and ally leaders around the world to use their economic platforms to advocate for LGBTQ equality, as well as to develop LGBTQ talent. We are the first and only global LGBTQ organization focused on the business conversation. We have three talent initiatives for young LGBT leaders, for women, and for board leadership that Matt has been a huge advocate and supporter for for the last six years called Quorum. I know we'll talk about those. And the final thing I'll say is that I'm just not just thrilled to be here, but also thrilled to welcome Bio as a member of Out Leadership. We now have 90 organizations globally that are members, and I'm very proud that Bio is one of our newest members and our first association member. So we're really excited for this conversation and hopefully for all that we're going to be doing together. Terrific. Thank you. All right. So as I mentioned, uh, chapter one is uh, is about where we've been, and uh, Denise, I'd like to uh, I'd like to ask you to kick off um, your uh, your experience, as you alluded to, nearly all of your career up until almost twenty twenty or twenty twenty one, really only with two organizations, uh, uncommon I think uh, in the modern time. And I'm curious on a couple of things from your standpoint. One would welcome some of your thoughts about advantages and disadvantages of making a long career uh, in a couple of uh, very, very large companies. Uh, and also, uh, I think you are, uh, you're maybe best positioned on our panel today to talk about um, setting your career in the context of those companies as a person who gets to check multiple boxes from an identity standpoint as part of the LGBT community, as a Latina and as a woman. And I'm curious about how you found those identities have informed your career decisions, opportunities, and constraints to the degree you've helped them. Oh, no, absolutely. And uh, thank you. Uh, I was, I grew up in Gary, Indiana. My dad worked in the steel mill, and I was a janitor um, uh, starting off to put myself through, through school. So one of the things I did not have was the inside scoop how you know how business works how relationships works how mentoring and sponsorship so it was a tough go in the beginning and i'd say my secret weapon was hard work and a good sense of humor and what i found in the beginning especially i mean i was in indianapolis and i had these fantastic so why stay at two organizations and it was because i had these incredible experiences, you know, uh, ultimately running multi-billion dollar businesses. You know, I was president of several, uh, several companies, but in the beginning, 
uh, I was so afraid of being out. And there were, weren't that many women, um, Hispanic women, and then, you know, lesbians on top of it. I, I, in Indianapolis, I thought basically it was me. And um, when uh, my wife, we've been together, um, uh, we've been married three times uh, without ever breaking up. So you guys know the, the background on all that. But uh, when I met Kim and we decided to have children, I said, that's it. I can't be a mom and uh, not be proud of who I am. And so I, um, I told my boss, I said, you know what, I'm pregnant. And he said to me, how'd that happen? <laughs> so that kind of sums up the experience of um, having to not only serve as this, you know, uh, oh my God, there's a lesbian in the building. And um, uh to serve as someone that no longer flinched because for a while I would flinch, right? Like you're pregnant and I would look down or, you know, you're, tell me about your partner. And I, I went through this process from self, uh, uh, you know, of, of self-love and uh, from self-acceptance to self-celebration, which ultimately became a competitive advantage for me. But, you know, why I stayed was, the all of these experiences gave me an advantage of being able to connect with others because it was it was so much easier to put myself in other people's shoes and so you know the people that i had this privilege to work with um you know i i could easily relate um uh, and then um i was very very fortunate you know through lily to j and j when i moved to j and j i wanted to work at different businesses. So I kind of grew up in pharma. And then uh, when I went to Johnson and Johnson, I'm like, I want to try medical device. And so it wasn't like staying in one company. So I went from the pharma side to running businesses and medical device, you know, to running the Tylenol company. And um, so it was a, it really was an incredible experience. Was it hard? You know, uh, yes, yes. Uh, it was very hard. And um, that feeling of loneliness and isolation, particularly in the beginning. And, you know, there's so much, I don't want to take any more time, but there's so much I would love to, you know, share with anyone listening to this about, you know, finding your inner voice, finding your strength, making, you know, bold, asking, you know, telling yourself, why not me? That's something that at some point I start saying to myself, why not me? Right. Why, why can't I be the president? So uh, that's it in a nutshell. Thank you. And let me double click on one of the, one of the points you mentioned. Uh, I appreciate your sharing your experience of, let's say your, your first professional coming out uh, in uh, your actual job. Given that you moved both to two different companies and then to multiple organizations within those companies, presumably that's a journey you had to take over and over again. Mm, uh, yeah. Did it get easier? Do you get better at oh, it? How did you yes. think about it as you had to introduce yourself into that? It became much easier because what happened was my my confidence, and it was a self-acceptance thing, and going beyond self-acceptance to like, hey, I, I actually really like myself, and I've got it, you know what, I've got a lot, of, lot to offer as I went through that process, but, you know, I'm telling the story as if it happened overnight, but I was definitely in my late 30s, you know, going through that process, and I developed my confidence in myself as, first of all, an employee, as a leader. And as, as I begin to see that, 
you know, my approach to management, uh, my results that, you know, that they were real. And it uh, reinforced in me that, um, that I had something to offer. And, uh, you know, I think I could take that, you know, to the bank with me. And at some point, uh, and and I don't know if, if you have had these experiences, but was I given tough assignments? Yes. I think I was thrown into, you know, when uh, Johnson and Johnson had uh, the last issues with Tylenol and we entered into a consent decree with the government and product was taken off the shelves. I wondered like, Oh, who's going to get that job being the president? Well, I got the phone call, but that had happened several times. And I think going through those experiences, both personally and professionally of being in tough situations and being successful in them rising above, not to say that I didn't fall down multiple times and cry and eat tons of ice cream. But when you come out, you know, the other end, it does give us over time. It's unfortunate, you know, for me that I couldn't have that confidence in my 20s, but um, that confidence built over days, months, and, and years. Thank you. Thank you. That's really, really interesting. Um, well, Paul, let, let me turn to you next. Um, in contrast with Denise's experience, I think your uh, your career has touched at least every size of organization represented in bio from startups through some of the largest companies in the industry like, uh, like Roche and Johnson early in your career, as well as I know active involvement in the, in the nonprofit sector as well. Um, I'm curious how you look at the, that range of experiences and what insights you would draw both from your own career and more generally for uh, for LGBTQ executives as they think about where they are and, and how to think about next steps in their careers? Great question, Matt, and, and thank you for inviting me to this panel. Uh, I So whatever happened with me in my early days, so in the 80s, is very different than what's happening now in big pharma. But just to give a little bit of backdrop of what I went through, And most of it probably was my own insecurity versus the people around me. Um, When I was coming up through the ranks at Roche Labs, there were two or three other people I knew who were in the closet the way I was. One of them actually took his own life years later. Uh, Others have gone on to lead double lives and others have gone on to lead the life that I lead, which is open, direct, and right out there with my um, preferences in life. Uh, And... But back then, it was it was really rough. You, the the feelings that I had were that uh, when people outed themselves in an organization like Roche, they ended up in the advertising agency as an account executive, somewhere creative, right? So, um, but it was a perception that I think many of us probably um, created for ourselves, but it was also probably borne out by hearing some statements of people who didn't know that I was particularly gay. I didn't look gay, I didn't act gay. So I heard a lot about how people thought about gay people as I was in, a cl- in the closet. Uh, and that helped keep me in the closet for quite some time. It wasn't until my third biotech company, so it was Roche and then Synergen, but at Genzyme is when I came out. Uh, and when I finally came out, it was evident to me that it wasn't a big deal to anybody. And it was in an interview I had with Henry Tremere one of the founders of our industry, one of the great leaders of our industry, one of the great diversity and equality um, champions of our industry in the very early days. 
I actually had decided after having gone through my career at Roche, having gone through my career at Synergen, that when I interviewed with Henry, I was just going to come right out and tell him, hey, by the way, just want to let you know, I'm gay. And if you're not okay with that, I'm going to get on that plane and go right back to Amsterdam where I came from. And he said, you won't need to do that. I'm perfectly okay with it, as is Genzyme. And that was it. That was the last time Henry and I ever d discussed my fear of being openly gay inside of an organization. I was out at Genzyme and in every other company ever since. Uh, some of the issues that, like I said, that one went through then may not be what one goes through today, but what I would advise everybody is to make sure that they feel out the organization. I speak a lot at LGBTQ events, at uh, diversity events, at women in biotech events. And one of the things that, that I hear is that there still is a diversity of environments and attitude towards openly gay people in the industry. So my advice to folks as they traject through their career is to feel out the organization they're in and understand how that organization may or may not react to whatever degree of openness they wanna have. And if they determine that they can't be open and they can't live with that, go find another job because there's another company right down the street that will deal with that openness, right? And if they find that it's too open for them, that's okay too. They don't have to be wide open. They can be a little bit more protective about their personal life because nobody needs to share their personal life unless they want to help others. So I think the environment today is a much better environment. Um, and I, I think it's going to be a lot easier for people at very young ages. I see people now that go to our LGBTQ events that are in their 20s and their 30s, and they want to be future leaders in our industry. And being gay has nothing to do with any impediment to getting there in the, in the eyes of these folks. So I'm very proud that our industry has sort of landed there. And I think it's um, going to get even better in the future. That's terrific. Thanks, Paul. Really appreciate that, that overview in that context. Um, Todd, maybe turning to you next as we close out this first chapter. Uh, like Paul, you've been in a range of very small to very large organizations. Uh, and I think knowing a bit about your background, you've both faced some constraints, but also really capitalized on some interesting opportunities that are anchored in your identity as a gay man. And I'm interested to have you set that in context for us, and in particular talk a bit about what catalyzed your decision to, to found out leadership, and, uh, and maybe what have you learned over the course even of this last chapter about um, what our leadership brings and, and how that fits with this, this range of different corporate environments that Paul alluded to. Well, I, I would say a couple of things. Um, so I, I grew up in North Carolina and I moved to New York City right after college. I started Wall Street six days after graduating. Um, and I didn't have any issues in North Carolina. I didn't have any issues at Duke. I didn't have any issues in my fraternity. My first experience with major homophobia was on Wall Street. On my second week and my job, I had a homophobic boss that used homophobic slurs to describe people around him. And I thought, oh my gosh, I, I survived all of these, all of this time before New York. And I came to New York and I came to Wall Street with this idea that it was better and diverse. And, you know, it was Wall Street, right? It was, it was business focused that we weren't going to have homophobes. And, you know, lo and behold, we did. Um, and so I did what anybody in a homophobic environment did. I went back in the closet and I started looking for a new job. And much like Paul, I decided that I was not going to ever be in the closet again. Uh, and so I was out in my interview for my second investment bank, and I was just really out. I was like, I'm gay, and you need to know it. 
and uh and they all were like dude it's totally fine like chill out um but much like i think all of us when we experience homophobia or discrimination it puts up our guard and we have to find a way to let that guard down so we can be ourselves in the office and so my second bank onward i was able to not just be myself but to leverage the understanding and access that i had to our community in a business context so in that second investment bank, I was able to connect with CEOs of media companies and win business. We worked on out and advocate merging the very first time because I had access to the gay community. When I went to Merrill in 2001, not a single Wall Street firm had focused on the LGBTQ market, believe it or not. And so I went with the business plan to say, look, we're, we've, we've got specific financial issues. At that time, there were, all over, there were over 1,049 rights at a federal level that gay and lesbian couples did not receive because marriage equality was not a federal reality. It wasn't even a state reality at that time. And most of those issues were financial. And so I said, well, why isn't Wall Street talking to these couples? Why isn't Merrill Lynch focusing on this opportunity? And my boss said, sure, kid, go for it, you know, <laughs> whatever. Um, and my, my goal was a million bucks a month of new assets I had to bring in. And if after eight, 12 months, I didn't have $12 million under management, I was fired. And I brought in 100 million in the first 12 months and almost 2 billion in the first four years from the LGBT community because I partnered with Lambda Legal and I did domestic partner planning seminars. But ultimately, I connected business to equality because I said that Merrill had to focus on supporting gay organizations. We also had to have the right policies internally. Believe it or not, they didn't have the right policies. Nobody did at that time. And I didn't come at it from the right thing to do. I came at it as this is a market. This is a business and we have to act as responsible citizens and support the community if we want to have access to this business. And so when I went to, to Credit Suisse, I took that same approach into the diversity space because in Maryland, it wasn't diversity, it was business. And then when I founded out leadership, I took the same framework because 10 years ago, businesses and CEOs were not talking about equality. They were not looking at it as a business issue, it was a social issue. And so my very first summit was the first time more than one CEO had spoken on gay issues in the same place at the same time. And we've grown since then. I have over 700 global CEOs and regional CEOs who have spoken at our summits, who have used their platform to advocate for change. We have not just the summits, but we have research and these talent pieces. And I think to, to answer the second part of your question, Matt, the commonality, there, there's several commonalities that I see. One, it is that out leaders are coming out more and more. The average age of kids coming out now is 12. So if I think about that and when I was coming out, you know, I, I, I thought 18 was young. Uh, but now it's 12 and generationally it was even older, depending on sort of where you're looking in the in the sphere of corporate America and the corporate space. But if you also think about the fact that not only are these kids coming out, but 60 percent of them, according to our research, go back in the closet for their first job. So as Paul was saying, and I think Denise was saying as well, things have gotten significantly better and yet they haven't. We just saw today Governor DeSantis in Florida sign the, the anti-trans bill into law. And it's one of 135 anti-trans bills in 35 state legislatures. We have marriage equality, and yet we have all of these other challenges as a community all across the United States and across the world. And the business community really is standing up to fight back against these, but it's, it's, it's an onslaught. And so there really are these sort of push-pulls, but it all comes down to people being out at work and being comfortable in themselves, as Paul said, and taking that mantle and that power we have. And that's the last thing I would say is that LGBTQ leaders are empathetic. We have to code switch between straight and gay all of the time, right? Denise had to come out at each of the places that she moved into. Paul had to come out at each of the places. But even within those companies, they probably had to come out every single week and every single meeting that they walked into. And that's a constant challenge and a constant opportunity 
but it makes us empathetic. It makes us read the room for safety and it makes us great leaders. And I think that's really the difference. 20 years ago, we didn't have role models who were out great, amazing leaders because people couldn't be. Now they can and they are. And I think it's really exciting, but it's up to us to continue that momentum. That's, that's a really terrific anchor for us, I think, to uh, move to chapter two. Um, and uh, Todd, since you've, you've got the, the virtual floor, maybe I'd like to leave that with you for, uh, for the start of this conversation. Um, so I think you and the team at Out Leadership probably have the best finger on the pulse of the state of LGBTQ life in corporate America and now increasingly in corporations worldwide. You touched on uh, a couple of the extremes just in your in the comments you just made between what feels like retrograde legislation happening in states and elsewhere on the one hand, and yet hundreds of business leaders on the others standing up behind equality. Um, give us a few snapshots, if you will, of what's the state of play uh, for LGBTQ people in the corporate world today? Well, I'd say a few things. Um, I, I think we can look at it from a U.S. perspective and also a global perspective. Um, in the U.S., we still have, as I just mentioned, all kinds of anti-trans bills that are going around. Uh, the Bostock decision for the Supreme Court last year made sex discrimination include gender identity and sexual orientation, which means that LGBTQ people in employment are still are now protected in quotes. That has not made it through all the government uh, agencies. That has not obviously made it through all the states. And that's how so many of these bills are being able to be passed. We still have major discrimination in HIV. 30 states still criminalize HIV status. We still have uh, housing and food insecurity across the United States. Our leadership publishes a business climate index that we actually publish the 1st of June each year that ranks all 50 U.S. states across 20 publicly identifiable data points and sort of shines a light, if you will, on the discrimination that still exists at the state level because it is a patchwork of discrimination and opportunities. And yet in all of those states, we do business. So the opportunity for business to push back against these, I think is significant. We also do it on a global level. In 67 countries, it's still illegal in some way, shape or form to be LGBTQ. And in a quarter of those countries, you can actually be killed or in prison. And so the challenge globally is just the same as we have here in the United States. Marriage equality did not solve all of our problems. Not everybody wants to be married, but everybody does want to go to work in safety and we still don't have that opportunity, not just the US, but globally. And so companies really are understanding now that it is a risk not to speak out on these issues. 10 years ago, it was a major risk to, to, to speak out on a social issue like gay rights. 10 years later, if you don't speak out, not just on LGBT rights, but on voting rights and discrimination and women's reproductive health and Muslim bans, and the list goes on. And if you look at the research, not leadership research, but more corporate research on trust, People trust companies and CEOs more than they trust the federal government. So it is a, not just an opportunity, but it, is a, it really is, in my opinion, an obligation for the companies, and I encourage all the bio companies listening as well, to think about how do you show up? What is your policy? And it's not just about policy, but what is your internal policy on inclusion? But then how do you externally demonstrate your values? Because companies have to live by their values globally now. There's no opportunity with social media to hide. And if you think about how that plays out in a business context, you know, the context of ESG or the concept of ESG, I think five years ago will not exist. It'll simply be how people have to do business. And I think that really is something that companies need to think about because 10 years ago, that was not a conversation. 10 years from now, it will be what is expected. 
the Gen Z kids coming in, they're not, kids is the wrong word, but the Gen Z young leaders coming in, expect it. They demand it. They will not work for you if you don't have a handle on this. They don't even know what the issue is. They have gender non-conforming friends. 30% of Gen Z, according to the research two weeks ago, identify as gender non-conforming or gender queer, 30%. Now that's just massive. And if you're still stuck thinking about what a gender neutral bathroom means, you have missed the boat. So, you know, the, the state of play in corporations globally, just to sort of wrap it up and answer your question, is, is, is a patchwork. I think the smart companies have figured out that they have to change. The, the old Peter Drucker quote in business, you don't have to change, survival is optional, very much applies to this next generation and it very much applies to how companies have to approach this issue. It is an opportunity, but it's also an obligation. Uh, thank you. That, that's terrific as a backdrop, and I think tees up very well. Uh, Paul, I'd like to turn to you um, as uh, picking up on, on some of Todd's themes about individual businesses as well as industries getting engaged, uh, and to give you an opportunity now as uh, as leader of this organization to talk a bit about what Bio has put in place and what you've envisioned uh, specifically around the bioequality agenda and more generally on these issues. You bet. And Todd, don't get me going. I mean, you just you just lit me on fire just listening to that. And you are so spot on from my point of view. Um, you know, what I often tell my colleagues who are also like me, openly gay, that may not be as open as I am in the industry is just what you said about leadership. I believe that the reason that CEOs are trusted more than government and other officials is because CEOs are now incredibly diverse. You see more MD, PhDs running company, more scientists running companies, more women running companies, more gay men running companies. And so we're no longer this sort of like white male, one party versus the other kind of person running companies. And I think that's helped people realize that, you know, we can be trusted. There's another thing we have to do to be trusted. And that is if we are openly gay and we're advocating for LGBTQ plus issues, we have no credibility if we're not advocating for every other diverse population. Because guess what? All of those diverse populations are part of our population and have their own issues to deal with as well. The one little side story I have to tell you is I've been running a summer camp for kids in their teens from 12 to 18, 11 to 18 actually, who have Crohn's and colitis and other diseases of the bowel and bladder. A couple of years ago, one of my proudest moments was there was a young person that was coming up through the ranks. At the time he was a male, he's now a female. But that person identified himself at the time as gay. And one of the other counselors hooked him up with me to discuss some of his issues growing up as a gay young uh, teenager. And he said to me, I'm not really interested in your advice on that. I've got that all taken care of. I want to know how to deal with my illness. <laughs> and that person went on to become a trans person. And that's now, we, now she's a woman. And I, I agree that kids, young people are earlier and earlier in life, coming out, identifying as to who they want to be. And I think that's wonderful. So then, therefore, what do we need to do as a trade organization for these issues as well as other issues? Uh, you know, I think the diversity and inclusion initiative of BIO, while it started as let's focus on what we can control, what we can actually do something about, which is getting more women on boards, I think we've succeeded in contributing to that discussion, right? And now I think our our emphasis is continuing to promote the diversity on our own board at BIO as well as others with uh, gender diversity, 
but also with racial diversity and preference diversity. While we're still like 39% um, female to male on the bio board, one of the things I always say at the nominating governance committee is 39% is not good enough for me. I'd like to be 50%, right? So we can never settle, that's number one. And number two, we can never stop advocating. And so the Workforce Diversity and Inclusion Initiative and the committee that is um, you know, running that particular initiative is now constantly focused on, for example, joining out leadership, um, joining other organizations where we can contribute to you know, the diversity of our workforce. Because we all know it's not just about advocating for diversity, it's about creating a workforce that is diverse and is happy and is productive. And it, without diversity, without um, openness about diversity in our organizations, these organizations will not be productive. We all know from when we grew up in this industry, how dysfunctional it could be when you couldn't be out and about, about who you are and how uncomfortable that was, not only for ourselves, but for others, right? So I think these things need to be definitely overcome. I'll tell you one little story about a chairperson that, you know, Matt, I'm not going to mention this person's name, but when I became a CEO of a company, this chairperson uh, sat me down and said, you know, you have an all white male board. Most people are in their, this, I was in my 40s. Most people are in their 60s. They're going to talk about their wives. You probably don't want to talk about your husband at the board table. And so I, I, I kind of let that go when he said it. And the board meeting came up and the board meeting was happening in a golf club in Palo Alto that at the time did not allow women. And so my CFO was a woman. And so I said to the chairman, I'm not going to this board meeting at that Palo Alto golf club. If that Palo Alto golf club doesn't allow women, they, they certainly wouldn't allow me if they knew I'm openly gay and that's what I am. So I'm not going to that board meeting. They were going to have that board meeting at the company. And he was taken aback and he said, you know, I never thought of it that way. So I open, right? But generation or two ahead of us um, and, and really didn't want to push the envelope on things. But I think this unconscious bias that I'm going to give him credit for having <laughs> was part of the equation, right? And is still part of the equation today. And not just about, you know, LGBTQ, but about other forms of diversity and the recognition Right? There are some people, like the governor of Florida, who doesn't recognize trans as a population he wants to cater to or give equal rights to. Well, am I going to do business with that person? Am I going to do business in that state? Probably not. Right? I'm going to have to sell our pharmaceuticals all over the country. But when I think about where I'm going to do business, where I'm going to go to conventions, where I'm going to support um, for things, I'm going to remember that. And I think that's something... And that's not a threat, by the way. That's a right. We all have that right, right? If we don't believe, if this is a state that doesn't believe in abortion rights or a state that doesn't believe in women's rights or a state that doesn't believe in gay rights, we have to be true to ourselves. Why should we pretend that because we're a leader in organization, we're going to cater to that, to that, you know, that kind of environment or that kind of leadership? Maybe I'll show up in that state, but maybe I'll put up a billboard before I get there that says, I'm sorry, I don't support this, right? So those are the things I think we have to do as leaders. Uh, I'm not suggesting that bio is going to do that, by the way. I might do that as an individual, but as chairman of bio or chairperson of bio, I have to recognize that there are all kinds of members of bio as well. So I think 
what we do as individuals sometimes goes beyond what we may be able to do as a leader of an organization. And that's probably okay. I don't think any organization is going to tell us we can't speak our mind. Paul, thank you for that. And I think that's a, uh, that's a terrific setup for the question that I uh, wanted to pose to Denise next, which is we've, we've talked about the environmental context uh, that Todd set for us and with you, both the institutional and the individual opportunities to engage with that. Um, Denise, I was interested in particular to ask you about leadership and your opportunities as a leader over the course of your career. And uh, I know that you are also now working with this nonprofit organization that's focusing on, on mentoring and coaching and would welcome your thoughts, uh, both from your experience as a leader in your professional life, as well as now in your nonprofit work about translating in particular for mentoring, coaching LGBTQ leaders as part of that work? Well, I, I think first of all, um, I mean, the, the comments, you know, Todd and, and Paul, you know, re really just, you know, terrific context here. I also think one of the things we have to think about um, is that once we get there um, and we reflect on how we got there, we also have to remember how hard it is for people that are just starting off. And we know all the research that's done about the broken rung. And if we look at women, if we look at other underrepresented uh, individuals, something happens. We know that we're entering the workforce, but every step along that way from manager to director to you know, more of a vice president, we're falling off of that rung. And why is that happening? Why is it that we can still go to companies? And this is a true story. I, I Sometimes I do some work in DEI and there were a group of senior people talking this and we were doing some discussion about engagement. And I said, well, how's the LGBTQ plus population? And basically no one identified. Um, as being in that population. And then the conversation ensued about, well, isn't John or Mark or whatever on the second floor, isn't he? And, and, and the thought of that just, uh, it, it really caused me great anxiety because for the people that are not only in that company, but in other companies that we really still have this problem, big time have this problem. So this goes into what does a leader do? collectively as leaders, it's great to have activity and educational sessions and, you know, all of these types of things. But until we move the numbers, until we see representation, uh, the, you know, people that are comfortable being out, and we see those people at different levels, until we see that, uh, you know, until we see, um, you know, that, that, the, you know that, that old adage, right, to be one, we have to see one. And so to me, that is success. Now, as an individual leader, what do people need to do? You know, it's not rocket science. What makes people feel comfortable? We talk about inclusion, right? So, and how do we, how do we build trust and how do we build psychological safety? We do that by not thinking about ourselves. But of thinking as, as, as a leader, we're there to get the best out of our people so that they can serve our customers. And so when we do that, we act, someone told me one time, gave me this advice, you know, Denise, you know, in leadership, 
act as if you're the hostess at the party or the host at the party, as opposed to waiting for everyone to come to the king and queen. I don't know when when uh, when I started off, right, the, the hierarchy there, you'd have to go in if you got a chance to kiss the ring. Oh, so and so. How did you get to vice president? How did you do whatever that, you know, that um, approach is forces people to be anything but psychologically feel psychologically safe. So as leaders, bringing the best out in people, asking questions and actually wanting to hear the answer, right? So that idea of listening and ensuring that whether it's language or things that create an inclusive environment, and we know if anyone has studied organizational um, organizational issues, you know, when Google did the study and found number one factor for high-performing teams is psychological safety. Well, was that a surprise? We all acted like it was a surprise, but gosh, if we don't feel safe, how can we do anything? How can we bring out good ideas? And, you know, how can we take risks? So the what does a leader do? A leader helps other people feel safe, not in a way, because even as we talk about diverse individuals, there's no such thing as a diverse individual. We're all just individuals. Collectively, we create diversity. So we don't make people feel like there's something different. We're, we are not that we're all the same, but we all have a, an equal um, role to play uh, on making a business successful and in serving patients. And so to me, leadership is about connection, it's about safety. It's about motivating others, believing in others, finding talent, you know, in, in many, many places on teams and uh, helping that talent be successful. Denise, thank you. I think that's an extraordinary uh, summary. And I'd like to use that as a springboard to a, uh, let's call it a lightning round on our chapter three, uh, looking forward. And, uh, I'm cognizant that we have uh, listening to the panel today, folks everywhere from, uh, let's say, latter third of the careers, uh, as perhaps uh, the four of us are, to folks who are early in their career, uh, Gen Z, as Todd alluded to earlier. Uh, so let me ask each of you, and, uh, and Paul, I'll start with you, uh, one or two specific pieces of advice, your choice, either for earlier in career LGBTQ leaders, and or early in career LGBTQ employees in the industry um, as they think about managing their careers and being successful. Yeah, I, so one of the things Denise said that rang very true for me was this concept of not forcing our ideology on others. So go to www.encartatx.com and you'll see that our diversity stats are up there in these beautiful pie charts. One of the things you'll see that was enlightening to me is that when I reached out to our board, they all self-identified. So you'll see there are three of us that are LGBTQ on the board. You'll also see a breadth of diversity on the board that has been designed that way. Um, but when you go into the ranks, you won't see LGBTQI. And the reason for that is my head of HR, who's also openly gay, said to me, Let's not make people uncomfortable just yet. Let's let them see us lead and see if at one point someone comes to you and says, hey, <laughs> why aren't I on that pie chart, right? 
I might be on there because I'm, you know, Hispanic or I might be Asian or I might be African-American, but I'd like to be on there because I'm LGBTQ. Because until people actually come, and this is advice for young folks as well, by the way. I know that when I came out, I was president of a division of a company. I felt very secure. And I was sitting across the table from a Dutch CEO who had a reputation for being an open-minded, wonderful person. So that made me comfortable to tell him my story, right? Had it been somebody else, had it been the CEO of the company that acquired my former company, I might not have said that. So I think we have to be empathetic to that and let that let it happen naturally um, so that as people who are up and coming, rather than out them, let them decide when it's comfortable for them to develop their own leadership style. And my bet is, is that they all will and they'll all be very open and they'll all be... Um, you know, inclusive and diverse in their approach to everything they do in their careers. Terrific. Thank you, Paul. Uh, Todd, over to you. One or two uh, final pieces of advice. Uh, well, I would bifurcate it. I would, for the out-nexters and the young people coming up, I always talk to our out-nexters about what I call their gay vantage or their queer vantage or their LGBTQ plus vantage. And that is the idea that because of our LGBTQ status, we have to know ourselves. You have to come out. And by coming out, you, I think, are a better leader. You have a value system that is yours alone because you figured it out yourself. So I encourage them to not just be aware of that, but to leverage that. I think it is such an asset for them coming into their careers. And the best way for them to leverage that is to play on and to reach out to the access that they have because they are part of our community. I would guarantee you any young person that reaches out to Paul or Janice or me or you, Matt, because they are part of our community, they have access. We will reach out to them and we will mentor them. We will sponsor them. That does not happen in any other community in the same way it does in ours. And so for the young people, I encourage you to be aware of that and take advantage of that. Equally, I won't say the older people. I will say the people on the, what did you say, the, the last end of our spectrum. We're in our twilight years or something, Matt. You're just like putting us in an early grave. The people who are more senior, don't be like the, the kings at the, at the cocktail party that Denise was talking about. I was once told you have two hands and a corporate ladder as you're climbing, one to pull up and one to pull somebody else up behind you. We should be doing that. We absolutely have an obligation, especially as a community, because we have so much more work to do. So every senior person, in my opinion, has an obligation in our community to reach back and to help those younger than us, because that is how we'll make progress. So... To the young people, look up and reach up, and to the senior people, reach down and pull people along. Terrific, Todd, thanks so much. And uh, Denise, we will give you the last word on this question. Ah, well, thank you. You know, there's a uh, professor who's kind of well-known um, and talks about building a trust triangle and how much, you know, as we look at our careers or really anything in life is built around whether or not we have trust with individuals. And she talks about three factors. One is, are we being authentic? The second is, do we have empathy? And the third is, are we logical? I just want to talk about the one about being authentic because I could relate to this. Before I was out and people would say, what'd you do over the weekend? And I would always have these just, um, you know, stuff with friends. And I never went into any specifics and I actually bored myself. And so when we think about the idea of being authentic, right? Being authentic is the sum total of all of us, right? And, and for me, you know, being part of the LGBTQ plus community, sure, I'm also a mom, right? I'm also Hispanic. I also you love, you know, 
to walk. And I love, there's a whole bunch of things, right? And so, you know, I'm a wife and we are the sum total of these things. And to know as you're going through your career to be proud of that sum total, that that all of that stuff, which is our clay ends up being, if we embrace it, definitely our competitive advantage. And to know that if you're afraid, most people are. Most people don't have, you know, we all act, oh, gosh, you have the self-confidence and whatever. That's something that we kind of build over the over time. But that old saying of fake it, you know what? Fake it and tell yourself, you know what? Yes, I can. Yes, I can. Will you fall down? Yes. Anyone that's been successful has fallen down and gotten up, you know, that with that, you know, saying fall down 99 times, get back up a hundred. And so take a chance on you. Take a chance on you because you won't let yourself down. And when you do, you know, have troubles, realize that anyone that has achieved whatever their level of success is, has had the same. And make sure as you define your success, put joy in there, put happiness in there so that your career is not drudgery. Uh, but you can look back and say, damn, that was a hell of a ride. Joy and happiness in, boredom out. I think that's about as good a note as we can end on. Uh, thank you all for your, your participation today and for managing to jam about five hours of content to 45 minutes. Uh, really appreciate it. Uh, Todd, I will finish by echoing your observation that the individuals on this call and others in your network can and should be good resources for LGBTQ leaders going forward. Uh, and let me close as well by thanking Bio for devoting a piece of its very full BioDigital agenda to this topic. Really terrific. Thank you for listening to I Am Bio. We will be back in September with a brand new season. 